What's up? Let's talk about television. Television is a huge part of my life. What a delight it is. To watch something, track with it, the longer format really allows you to get into it. Characters and stories and sort of change your mind about things and have new discoveries. It's nice. But there is also a lot of it, a whole lot of it. Uh, and I've watched some, you know, docu-series, anthologies, adaptions, spinoffs, probably even remakes. I can't think of a remake that I've watched, but I'm sure I've watched one. But as I've been enjoying different TV shows during the last year or so and sort of talking with my friends about them, I wanted to bring them to you and suggest them to you. But all of those different sort of subcategories, being that there's so many different types and you know that I love lists, I think they deserve their own lists, which they shall get. So today we can just get into your good old fashioned fictional TV, right? I, I could have broken it down further by genre and expanded, but I'm gonna, we're going to start off with a grab bag, yeah? One or two of everything fiction, a little comedy, a little drama, a little superhero. Um, and now is a good time to tell you that we will be talking about TV. So while we're avoiding major spoilers, we are going to touch on some stuff. So um, this is not a hard spoiler alert, but if you are someone who likes to go into watching something knowing nothing about it, why don't you just pause? If you hear the name of the show you haven't seen, watch the entire show in completion, come back, listen to the rest of the podcast uh, until you hear another one and then pause it again. That's just one way to do it. You don't have to do it that way. I also have a few honorable mentions. I have tacked on at the end because while I love lists, um, I'm not great at brevity. It's a goal of mine to master it this year. I don't think it will happen, but I'm going to move in the right direction. All these shows are some that came out over the last like year or two. It's been like people's quarantine shows. I want to talk with a couple people about why they love these shows. Uh, and first, I would like to start with a gratitude. Here we go. Today, I am grateful for collaboration. Having been on the set of a TV show and seeing just the hundreds of people that it takes uh, to make a show, everything from lighting to special effects to just stunt teams who are true superhumans, and then post-production and scoring and sound design and set design. And it just is, they're all such art forms and all such skills of their own. And the amount of people that come together all to sort of tell the story and believe in it it's really inspiring. And the farther that I've been away from it, the more respect that I have for it, especially in just watching these shows and the five worlds that were created out of people's heads and and then the thousands of people that came together to create things that we can watch while we cross-stitch on the couch or watch to really take us either out of what we're feeling or help us understand and navigate it. So I'm really, really grateful for collaboration. And that includes collaboration on this podcast. It takes a few people. My brother is amazing with sound design. He's just so talented. Couldn't do it without him. Couldn't do it without my friend Rob, who produces this and encouraged me to do this. And most importantly, couldn't do it without my sexy engineer sitting over there. It's my husband. He's pushing all the buttons. You know, they say, yeah, don't marry a rock star. But actually, if you marry a talented musician, He's like 25% rock star and 75% nerd. And what's great about that is that he can record the podcast while we're both in sweats. So without further ado, five fiction shows to watch if you haven't. Number one, WandaVision. I love watching a show that you can't binge. We love the binge format, we know. But like tuning in every week and watching it develop and not knowing and having theories, it's great. 
I also have never been super, super into the the MCU. Uh, and at the beginning of quarantine, went through the Marvel movies and watched a lot of them to get an understanding of, of people. So it, WandaVision couldn't have hit me at a better time. As well as what I love about WandaVision, it's a couple things. One thing, it's just this beautiful love letter with so much attention to detail to different decades of television. You can see just in the way they shoot things, the way they cut things, the the air, the sound design, obviously costumes and set design. And uh, when it begins to unravel and you sort of notice the different drapes in different time periods and different chairs and, you know, it highlights clothing design, interior design, but also trends in television and how media has changed. And I think that's so interesting and cool and meta and fun and beautiful. I grew up watching a lot of like Laverne and Shirley and Leave it to Beaver and Happy Days and Step by Step and Fresh Prince and watching the homages to all of these and carving out different sort of genres of TV is so fun. And also then we have the suspense and the mystery of everything and not knowing exactly that sort of uneasy feeling that creeps across you from just the end of episode one that really begins to unfold. It's so, it's so beautiful. It's so fun. The cast is amazing. Catherine Hahn is iconic, but also a beautiful exploration of grief. We've talked about grief on this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit more about grief on this podcast, not today, but I think seeing where grief can take different people and there's different characters that have different relationships with grief and how they figure it out and how they navigate it and the places that it shows you. It's really beautiful. Uh, and amazing performances from people being able to act all of those different genres in sort of one subgenre. It's great. And that's on WandaVision. The second show that I think is really lovely and happy making uh, was one of the most delightful shows I've watched in a long time. Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen it. Sudeikis, he goes to England and coaches a soccer team, a football team. And I just think it's a beautiful show. It's so lighthearted and heartfelt. And a friend of mine uh, who just has seen everything, um, he and his wife and me and my husband were all friends and he loved Ted Lasso. So I wanted to talk with him a little bit about that. This is Mark Hoppus. Um, all right. So talk to me about Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. Uh, I started watching Ted Lasso. I think it had been out for a couple months and I'd seen online people talking about it. And I wasn't really at a point in pandemic where I wanted to watch an entire series of something. And then I watched one episode and I just got immediately sucked in and ended up watching the whole series in like a day and a half. Ted Lasso is, is really easy to move through to your point. Did you find it interesting in terms of like American in London and that culture? I know you spent some time in London with your family. Yeah, totally. We lived in London for three years and, you know, we definitely knew more, I feel like, than Ted Lasso did when he hit the ground uh, and started trying to coach a football team. But Definitely there was that fish out of water kind of, all right, we're 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 learning an entirely new culture, even though it's very close to American culture. Uh, and it was fun. And I, and the show was just so joyous. It was, in a time when everything was so divisive and acrimonious and people yelling at each other and political and everything else, this was a show that just had a really, like a heart of gold. And you felt good watching it. Like, you know, you you wanted him to win. You wanted the whole team to win. You wanted everybody in the show to win. There wasn't really like a villain who you were like, oh, I hate that person. Everybody had their flaws. Everybody had their gifts. You know, it was it was rad. I liked it. And I liked um, the heart of it being sort of about people first and relationships first. I think that's something that the pandemic definitely brought to the forefront of my mind was just it's about sort of our minds, our hearts, our mental health, us doing well as people. And that 
translates to how we do on the field, right? Whatever your field is. Totally. Uh, <laughs> and I like the believe sign. And uh, it was just funny. Nice. It was funny and it was it was clever and smart. I, uh, I want to get you a believe sign for your house. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I want to put it up as you walk into my studio. Yeah, right under your live, laugh, love sign. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark Office. Thanks. Always good talking to you. Good talking to you. We love Mark Office. So another show I've been watching is The Boys. The Boys, I think, is great. It's satire <laughs> and it's dark, but it just highlights and satirizes like people in power and accountability and the sort of like media culture. And uh, if you don't know about it, it's on Amazon. It's about basically superheroes that are sort of owned by like a big, you know, conglomerate, like a media conglomerate and just like monetized and branded and as well as, you know, murder and vengeance and family and grief. And it's a gnarly watch. So I will say it's, uh, it can be violent at times. Um, but I think there's a lot of violent TV shows. Yeah. And I think that it just makes some interesting points about all of the things, you know, it sort of is like by the industry for the industry. And it does feel like uh, largely informed by people that know what it's like for people to like make someone a star, you know, as Starlight sort of joins the the superhero group and everything. It's uncanny and really shitty. There's a lot of bad people. And I think that that's interesting. I think it's interesting when there's like not sort of one or two blameless people. Makes for a compelling watch because ain't that like life? So yeah, that's the boys. And then there is a show called Rami. The show Rami, I was talking with my dear friend, Karin, who I was on Jesse with. And he's been uh, actually, you know what? He's been on the pod before, but we did not release his episode because it was not the time. Um, but I want you guys to know and love Karin. Karin is a dear friend of mine. He's a wonderful young man. I've obviously watched him grow up as I was his fake nanny for several years. And now he's just a cool, smart adult. And he and I have had a lot of conversations about representation in media. So wanted to talk with him about Rami and what it was like for him to watch it and why it means something to him. So here's Karin Brar. Karin, what's up? So where do I begin? Um, Rami is one of my favorite shows of all time. I watched it, I binged it, um, and immediately following that, I sent a love letter to Rami and I was like, I love your show. I think it's beautiful. Um, because even though I'm not Egyptian, I'm not Muslim, and... I'm I'm not your age, like I'm not, you know, living on the East Coast. I'm not in my, well, I am in my 20s now, but um, I can, I still feel like I can relate to it. It really encompasses a lot of immigrant experiences and their children's experiences super well and is super applicable to a lot of different cultures. I don't know, for, for some reason, even though there isn't, you know, you put us next to each other, like Karn and Rami are not the same person, yet... I really bonded with it and in a, in a way that I, I didn't think I would. And I felt really seen. I felt like my family was seen. Mm. Um, and that's really exciting that something so specific at the same time, like a Muslim family in New York, you know, trying to make it work can transcend that and, and can be relatable to so many people of so many different cultures. But more importantly, the show is called Rami, but it's not about Rami. It's about his family and their experiences and really deep dives into all of their individual experiences. I think one of my favorite episodes was focusing on his mom um, 
trying to be busy and, and trying to, you know, fill her time. And she decides to become an Uber driver. And it just follows her day to day of being an Uber driver. And it was so beautiful and poetic and honest about the really complex relationships that women, particularly immigrant women, have with America and Americans that can be very, that can look very binary, that like either it's it's bad or it's good or it's, mm. it's hostile or it's not, mm -hmm. um, but really just showing the complexity of, of different cultures interacting with each other. Yeah. And I know that, you know, it's brought up a lot of conversations surrounding sort of religion and discrepancies in growing up in a specific belief system and in a specific culture and then reconciling with a new generation, but also sort of different friend groups and and families and experiences, something that's really interesting and important to explore on TV. Yeah, I think we're in a really interesting point in society where we're really questioning our belief systems. And Rami perfectly encompasses that experience in a very honest, honest lens. Did it sort of strike a specific chord in you? Yeah, I just felt like I saw myself on screen. Obviously, there has been brown representation on, on screen um, that extends past Rami, but... I mean, I could just say, like, as long as I've known you, you uh, talking about your experiences, talking about your particular family dynamic and representing that was something that you desired to do, whether through conversations with friends, never in a forceful way whatsoever. But obviously, when we worked together on Jussie, Ravi's story was so uniquely specific and we were trying to tell sort of an adoption story, right? And it was certainly a different show than the one that we would make in 2021. And a very different show. A very different show. <laughs> if given the opportunity now, we would approach things so much differently. And I remember even at that time, it being so important to have an authentic sort of connection and voice to being able to represent the thing that you hadn't seen that you desired to see. Yeah, I, I think it was, if you look at it from 2021, it's two steps forward, one step back. Mm. It wasn't the perfect step forward, but it was a step forward. And that was really exciting about what Jesse was at the time. And I heard from so many brown families that were like, this is so exciting to see brown representation, to see someone who looks like us that has, you know, I, I got so many letters from people with the last name Barar that were just excited to see a title card with their last name being wow. seen. And that's really exciting. And that, you know, that really warms your heart. But it's not without the one step back. Yeah, it's not without the one step back. And what makes me excited about the future is we are holding ourselves accountable and we are getting better and better. We can go, no, we can do better than this. We can make something more honest, more current, and yeah, more honest and more current. I love it. Better every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Feels like a party every day. As they say, hey, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, love you. I love Karen. Okay, the final show on this list is I May Destroy You. It is a, you know, it's hard to watch, but also hard to stop watching. It's so impactful. I haven't been really affected by a show this deeply as I was watching I May Destroy You. And uh, I was speaking recently with my friend Sam Lansky. Sam Lansky is a writer who has published a memoir and published sort of a fictionalized book that may or may not have been based off of real events. And... We've just had a lot of conversations about what it's like to um, experience sort of traumas and then like turn yourself inside out and turn that into art. And 
how vulnerable that is and how powerful it is and how the way that shows like I May Destroy You make you feel are important because of that authenticity and that connectivity, but also what goes into the DNA of of really putting your self on the page in that way while still trying to follow the format of like a fictionalized, um, you know, watchable media. So I loved I May Destroy You. And here is a little conversation I had with Sam Lansky about it. Yeah, I I really loved and was moved by I May Destroy You for a number of reasons. As you mentioned, it's the story of um, a young woman, Arabella, played by the show's um, writer, creator, star, and co-director, I think, of several episodes, um, Michaela Cole, uh, who's an incredibly talented English multi-hyphenate like person who can do literally anything. Uh, and she plays this woman named Arabella, um, who's a writer in London, who's kind of um, well known on Twitter uh, for being kind of like a funny millennial voice and has written a book um, and is working on her second book. And as she's up pulling an all-nighter to try and meet a deadline writing her uh, new book, she um, gets kind of tugged out by her friends to come like party and hang out um, while she's supposed to be working on this project. And um, over the course of that evening, although she doesn't sort of fully register what's happened at the time, um, she comes to realize in the aftermath that she was drugged and sexually assaulted. And the series is about a lot of things, but part of it is about her coming to terms with her own narrative around what happened to her and the kind of implications that has for her life and her identity and her art. And all of that, everything I just said, I think makes it sound like it's a really heavy show because the subject matter is heavy. One of the things that I so admire about I May Destroy You is it's it's rendered with a real kind of humanity and I think a lightness of touch, which is not necessarily the same thing as lightness, um, like I would not describe it as a light show per se, mm. but it's sort of shot through with a lot of light and ways in which things could be kind of sentimental or melodramatic or heavy handed. She just manages to avoid all of that. And I think the perfect, the perfect encapsulation of that is at the end of the first episode, one of my favorite moments from the show is she you know, is sort of blearily trying to finish this manuscript as, you know, in the early morning um, after this thing has taken place, which she doesn't quite know or understand yet. And she suddenly has this memory of herself being assaulted in a bathroom. And her reaction to it is she just sort of makes a noise that's like, huh. And it's such a funny, specific moment that kind of tells you everything you need to know about this character in the show that like as she remembers something truly horrifying and dehumanizing happening to her her reaction is not to like curl up on the floor and burst into tears but rather she's just like huh that's weird that's interesting yeah, yeah. right oh what wonder was that? what that's about yeah. yeah um which is so the kind of tonality of the show in that it's very curious about what drives us and what shapes us and what makes us who we are not in a way that's kind of prescriptive or diagnostic or demands that we deal with anything in a particular way, which I think so many of the narratives around um, sexual assault and sexual abuse have this kind of quality to them where it's like there is a right way to be a survivor and society 
asks or demands, particularly I think of women, that there is one good way to be a survivor of something as traumatic and upsetting as sexual assault. And part of the brilliance of I May Destroy You is Michaela Cole just sort of explodes all of that by allowing herself and her friends, each of whom are, are dealing with their own um, issues, much of them related to sexuality um, and sexuality and deceit and artifice and the ways in which we can all be kind of violated, whether implicitly or explicitly, as we move through life as sexual beings. None of them are doing it perfectly. None of them are doing it wrong. There's a real kind of generous, humane quality to the way she explores what it means to be a sexual person in the world and what it means to have your boundaries violated, what consent really means, not in the abstract, but like in a real tangible way as we try to navigate the world and our lives. Um, it's just incredibly sophisticated and incredibly smart, totally devastating, but in a way that I think kind of sneaks up on you um, and doesn't feel at all manipulative. Nice. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the words that you said was sort of generous and humane. And I think that that is what was probably so powerful and uncomfortable to me about it. I think it it can be easy to um, portray heavy and traumatic incidences as something that, to your point, demands or elicits a specific response, even from a viewer when you're watching it. And I think the the reality as I and my loved ones have come to have an understanding or a relationship with or an experience of or experiential understanding of some of these types of violations is that you largely, I think that we can just absorb them and then untangle them and sort instead of sort of being like flatlined by them in that moment that, huh, is I do believe where it starts for a lot of us is just sort of first indicating that like something doesn't line up and the, the body's traumatic response is just like, okay, keep going, do what needs to be done. And it can be hard to then step back and sort of get back in your body and say, what was this? And is this, what does this mean? And, and I think especially sort of later on in the season when she has an interaction with a person that she meets through work and they have a sexual experience and she realizes that, the way that that went down was also not okay and did not speak to a consent that she gave. I've never seen that televised. I've never heard someone say, if you agree to sort of the conditions of a sexual experience and those conditions are changed in the moment, that is also assault. I wish every person has that base understanding of knowing like, unless it is sort of previously discussed either in the literal sense or sort of in a respectful way, so baiting and switching is also a violation of someone's respect. Yeah, totally. And that's something that comes up on this show sort of repeatedly um, among Arabella's friends who also have these sexual experiences that, you know, are kind of like couched in deceit or um, disillusionment or, you know, people kind of misrepresenting who they are in really complicated ways. And I think instead of... Um, painting with a really, you know, broad brush and saying like all of these things are, you know, objectively um, on par with one another in terms of how offensive they are. This is a show that's really, really interested in like 
the sort of gray areas in what's acceptable and what's not and what we call certain types of violations. And I think, you know, to the extent that like society expects people to be perfect survivors in all these ways, particularly women, like that is also, I think, a feature of rape culture. Like rape culture is not just about um, all of the kind of violence and toxic masculinity that that term would indicate. It's also about this expectation that like people who are assaulted should have a certain type of reaction. And if they don't, they are doing it wrong. You mm -hmm. know, it's about the expectation that rape is the kind of rape that she experiences in the first episode where she is like drugged and assaulted by a stranger when she's not able to consent. It's really easy to look at that and sort of see the unambiguousness of that rape. But as the show unfolds, you realize that she's showing you all of these other kinds of situations where there are circumstances where people are made to feel unsafe or misled or betrayed or violated. What do you call all of those? You know, what do you do with all of those? And again, it's not interested in being damning or making everyone on the show a rapist or a survivor of a rape. Rather, it's it's interested in kind of interrogating the ways in which we think about and talk about um, sexuality and consent. And I think that's really, really important, especially in the, the cultural moment that we're in, where I think we're having these really overdue conversations about um, assault and consent and violence and sexualized violence to be really looking critically at how we think about these things that fall into areas that, you know, make us really uncomfortable, but are super important to talk about. Thank you. That's an important perspective. I like this show. <laughs> it's, it's a fun cultural experience as well, just contextually to be sort of in millennial London. It's totally. an amazing soundtrack. It's beautifully shot. The costumes the looks and are the outfits. amazing. Yeah, yeah, everything's great. So it is a, a really great and an important show. And I think that that's, it's what I'm attracted to in your work. It's what I'm attracted to in jobs that I choose or develop is exactly what I think we both responded to in this show, which is, playing within the messiness of human beings and knowing that more often than not, everything's somewhere on the gray of the continuum. And, and when you're tracking with someone, you're understanding their fears, you're understanding their concerns. To your point, it's, it doesn't sort of uh, feel morally confronting as much as you just sort of walk away and think about how you felt about all of these situations and who you sided with or who you wish did something a little bit differently. And then applying that to how we move through the world, I think is why it's one of my favorite things that has happened in culture in a long time. I may destroy you. Watch it. I may destroy you. Get into it. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. A few other shows, some honorable mentions that I love in terms of TV shows. One is Search Party. It, similar to maybe fans of Insatiable who sort of started thinking they were getting one thing and really went on a whole ride that expanded and maybe devolved. Search Party goes on its whole journey and it's different and it's cool and it's weird and I like it. And then there's a show called Cinema Toast that just hit Showtime where they're basically reimagining old public domain movies. It's so specific and so good and really... Um, you just have to go on the ride with it. 
but it has like this incredible cast of voice actors, all of whom are really just great and bring something so interesting to watching these like iconic actors on TV and then hearing the voices of people that are modern icons. It's, it's very specific. And yeah, Cinema Toast, it's an anthology. Everyone is sort of different. Um, but I think it's really, really smart and a little bit chaotic and really compelling. And it has a smart social commentary in it, but it doesn't feel like heavy handed or agended. So like Cinema Toast and Shit's Creek. Everyone likes Shit's Creek. I just think it's great. All right, that's on five fiction shows that you need to watch if you haven't watched them in no particular order. Um, you can find Sam Lansky on the internet under his name, Mark Hoppus on the internet under his name, and Karn Brar on the internet under his name. Uh, and let us know on the There You Are Instagram what other categories of things you want to talk about or hear about or things that we are getting into that we can share with you, um, who you'd like to hear me talk with and get some perspective from but until then happy watching